0: Welcome to Pomegranate Health, I'm Mick Cavazzini. In January this year, UK paediatrician Dr Hadiza Bawagarba had her license to practice medicine revoked for her role in the death of a patient. Six-year-old Jack Adcock died of septic shock on a chaotic day in the Leicester Royal Infirmary, that involved delays in his diagnosis and treatment. We already discussed cognitive error in the diagnostic process in episode 32. The case of Dr. Bawagadba highlights the systems pressures that can exacerbate medical error. Today we'll talk to three experts in health systems about problems in resourcing, diagnostic tests and scans, the ergonomics of health IT and the culture of disclosing error. Here's Professor Jeffrey Braithwaite of Macquarie University.
1: I'm Geoffrey Braithwaite. I run the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, and that's a large research group of about 150 people doing research on patient safety, e-health, how care is organised. You know, no one has ever designed a system as complex as healthcare. I don't care whether you're talking about manufacturing or banking or the military. So the question is, how do we understand that cognitive load of that individual amongst all that milieu of complexity and intricacy and difficulty?
0: On the 18th of February 2011, Dr. Bale-Gardba was the on-call paediatric registrar at Leicester Royal Infirmary in her sixth year of specialty training after studying medicine in the same city. She had recently returned from 14 months of maternity leave and had not yet been inducted into the hospital's workings. The account of that day presented here is collated from court documents, the BMJ and several other sources. For brevity, these are all linked to the transcript of the podcast found on the website. The Children's Assessment Unit at Leicester Royal Infirmary normally handles 15 acute admissions coming from either the emergency department or from GP referrals. The registrar supposed to be covering the CAU was absent on that day, and the consultant was teaching in a neighbouring town. Therefore, Dr. Barwagadba was left in charge of the CAU and of paediatric emergency. This meant she was overseeing surgical admissions, giving advice to midwives, and taking calls from GPs, as well as supervising several wards spread over four floors. She'd even missed the morning handover because she had to attend a cardiac arrest as soon as she started her shift, and many of the nursing staff were from an agency due to a shortage of permanent staff. Speaking generally, staff and training are the most valuable investment into patient safety, says Associate Professor Ian Scott of the University of Queensland. He's Director of Internal Medicine and Epidemiology at Princess Alexandra
2: Hospital in Brisbane. If you want to make care safer, there are some areas that clearly need more resources. That is, you need more staff and those staff also need to be uh, highly trained. Um, and there are some areas that could do with a fair injection of funds and extra staff, but aren't perhaps quite so sexy. So I'm talking about, you know, older, frail patients who have care needs that don't just involve giving them a drug or doing an intervention um, and don't need some bells and whistles, new scientific machine to improve their care. What they really need is well-trained nursing staff, perhaps in residential care sectors, okay, who can provide the nuanced care that they need uh, to keep them out of hospital and to make them, you know, as functional as they possibly can be. Mm-mm. Well, actually, that
0: reminds me of a systematic review that you wrote about the common misdiagnoses in older patients. And you wrote that dementia tends to go underdiagnosed and was, of course, associated with socioeconomic factors of the patient and poor access to care. Hmm. But one of the factors leading to underdiagnosis of Parkinson's disease, for example, was living in a nursing home. Um, What's going on there is... uh, perhaps at home, the family that knows the person so well can also detect when there's
2: something not quite right, whereas Hmm. the nursing staff are obviously flat out and and perhaps not as well acquainted with. Well, that's true. And uh, I think not an insignificant number of transfers are made at the behest of relatives who can see a definite change. I think we are now more aware of dementia, delirium, confusional states, certainly in a hospital setting. I think in residential aged care, they still have some way to go. Uh, And it's simply because uh, the level of training and the level of support hasn't been as good as it could be. Uh, We're trying to address that actually right now in our hospital by having an outreach service to nursing homes where we have... Uh, offered them training packages, uh, algorithms to handle common problems, uh, ready access to senior decision support from our emergency department and from our senior nursing staff here, Uh, paramedics who are trained to do assessments at nursing homes and try to prevent people from being brought into hospital unnecessarily. Uh, That, again, takes resources, Uh, but they have seen the benefit because we've actually reduced hospitalisations.
1: Let's think about three dimensions. Good, quick, quick and cheap. You can't have all three. You can have a good, quick system, but it won't be cheap. You can have a good, cheap system, but it won't be quick. Now, what it seems to me, emanating from you know ministers, officers, taxpayers even, um, that we want all three, well, there's trade-offs. So what, what are we willing to accept? I mean, we could have safer care for patients if we spent, I don't know, 3% more GDP, bumped it up from, what is it, 93 in Australia to, say, 12.3%.
0: And for the time being, it has been evaluated favourably in
1: what we get bang for the buck. At the systems level, is the Commonwealth Fund in the US, which assesses 15 countries on various dimensions. What's general practice like? What's uh, acute care like? Uh, What about pathology? And so they have different questions each year or so and ask all the health systems and interrogate them on that question. And usually Australia is in the top three or four on most dimensions, not every dimension all the time. New Zealand has a bit of an added problem. It's only four and a half million or so in a population. Um, it doesn't have to cover the same geographic width as Australia, but um, it doesn't have quite the resources and a smaller GDP.
0: Um, Other workforce issues are pretty obvious that long hours without breaks are going to lead to fatigue and lower cognitive capacity. Um, but interesting to me is the audit culture of of measuring the performance of health institutions. One example that's being pointed at is the the four-hour rule in emergency that requires that 98% of patients arriving at emergency are, are to be admitted, discharged, or transferred within four hours from the time of triage. Are strategies like this good for productivity
1: or do they add unnecessary pressure? So, you know, the obvious answer is yes and no. If you look at the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK is an example, and many listeners will have um, worked in the NHS and know a lot about it. Um, There's been a culture of key performance indicators, targets um, to to excess. I I think most people would agree it's been excessive. I published a paper with a colleague on this a couple of years back. It can lead to people focusing on the targets, but... They immediately defocus on all the other things that might be important. Um, They're also often rather artificial. They're cooked up sometimes in a minister's office or a policymaker's office because they want to get the press off the back. Um, Sometimes they have distortion effects. They also get a bit resented by clinicians who know that the world isn't as precise as that. Um, Every patient is different.
0: Jack Adcock was admitted to hospital on referral after a day-and-night history of diarrhoea and vomiting. He was a child with Down syndrome who'd previously had surgery for a congenital atrioventricular canal and was being managed with the ACE inhibitor enalapril. Dr. Boagardba assessed Jack at 10.30am. He was dehydrated, unresponsive and limp. He was breathing shallowly but had no raised temperature. Blood gases showed a pH of 7, a base deficit of minus 14, and a lactate reading of 11 millimoles. The doctor made a presumptive diagnosis of acute gastroenteritis and treated Jack with an intravenous fluid bolus. Jack seemed to perk up and blood gas measurements were repeated around midday. According to Dr. Bhawagadaba's defenders, these showed he was less acidotic and recovering metabolically. In court, the prosecution said the readings were still a long way off and that she hadn't drawn enough blood for accurate measurements to be made. Dr. Boagadwa did also order a chest radiograph and bloods for renal function and inflammatory markers, suggesting that pneumonia was on her radar. This differential diagnosis was confirmed at 3pm, when Hadiza Boagadwa saw the scans. In court, she was blamed for the two and a half hour delay in reviewing the x-rays. But Dr. Boagadwa hadn't been told that they were available, and during that time had been dealing with an infant requiring a lumbar puncture. Delays in the cascade of ordering and analysing scans are common and require an examination of both capacity and culture, says General Practitioner David Heslop. He's Associate Professor in the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at UNSW, and his research interest in modelling risk in health services comes from a career as a military medic.
3: I guess questions that are raised for me by the case in the UK um, relate to how faults within the system are managed. So if there are systematic delays within interpretation and it's known that it's causing a clinical effect, then there are potentially other options that could be explored. Does it have to be an NHS radiologist who who does the interpretation in the event that there's a surge? Or is there some way to better design the system so that there's a buffer capacity within that?
0: So according to a survey of 580 physicians published in JAMA, about 10% of all diagnostic errors came from delay in ordering certain tests, but equal proportions so another 10% of errors came from delays in getting the tests back and failure of the ordering clinician to follow up abnormal results. Another review in the Annals of Internal Medicine reported that three quarters of physicians surveyed didn't routinely notify patients of normal test results and up to a third of them didn't even always notify them of abnormal results. Um, Is there a cognitive barrier here that, you know, there's always one more patient at the door so that once the previous one is sort of out of sight, they're in a sense out of mind?
3: I find those statistics shocking. There is a large component of culture, um, culture that we acquire through medical school, through our junior years as clinicians, about the way things are done and due diligence. So we get trained, for example, to take a clinical history, to perform a clinical examination, and then tests are used to either rule in or rule out um, a a particular diagnostic hypothesis. And um and what what is highly concerning about results if they're not actually being viewed or if they're not being followed up, is that one has to question whether they've been ordered and conducted in the context of a formal
2: diagnostic strategy we know that the lack of follow-up of investigations that have been ordered is, is a problem, uh, particularly if patients are discharged and the investigation comes back after they've been discharged. They are system factors. Uh, you have a lot of requests that come back. Um, these are not necessarily urgent. Uh, clearly, you want to tell the patients they've got breast cancer, but it's not going to make a difference whether that be five minutes or two or three days. Uh, so the thing is that you have tests coming back that are not necessarily time critical, and many of which are also will be normal. Um, and you need to have a means of tracking those patients. Uh, a lot of practices have now gone to a registry-type process. Uh, I think the advent of the electronic record uh, should, I think, overcome now some of that problem. Uh Uh, You can now order investigations more quickly, electronically, so it doesn't involve uh, having to wait for a paper form uh, to reach the lab or to reach the radiology department. Uh, The result now is digitised, which is then readily accessible on any computer throughout the hospital. In terms of the reports... I think the uh, system response to that is that a radiology report is always appended to that digital image, even if it's a provisional report uh, done by a registrar or even in some cases a radiographer. And then there's a means of alerting the clinician that that digital image is available. Now, I think on the latter part, we haven't quite solved that problem in terms of alerting the clinician to say your image now has returned and you can now view it. Maybe a pager or some uh, visual or auditory alert on the computer certainly may help people uh, not have a delay in looking at those images when they're available and then make sure that the patient is notified of the result, either by simply a text message or some other electronic messaging or by phone contact, obviously in the case where it may be equivocal or positive, in which case then I think the relevant doctor should be asked then to have a talk to the patient and then have a discussion about what needs to happen subsequently. Than me. Mm. There's a another big review in the National Academic Press called
0: Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare from a couple of years ago. And it describes this issue of lost tracking, lost follow-up between teams of collaborative care. There, so say an incidental finding of um, it turns up on a back x-ray, there's some, some mass shows up on the x-ray. There might be a diffusion of responsibility as to which department takes ownership of that, whose responsibility is to follow it up, and that if, as long as we make more explicit uh, handoff policies
2: then that, that is a low-hanging fruit to re- eliminate these kind of errors. Yeah, well, that's another system issue in the sense that if you've got um, uh, multiple specialists or multiple providers involved in the care of a patient, then someone has to take overall responsibility and make sure that the whole picture is being looked at and reviewed. So the general practitioner, in many instances... Uh, If the patient is in hospital or is frequently seeing a lot of specialists in a hospital, then perhaps there's someone who has a generalist training or generalist outlook, uh, maintaining an overview of the patient. In our hospital here, the practice is that if a radiologist or a pathologist sees a critically abnormal value or image that uh, clearly may bear on the urgency of treatment, then the relevant team is phoned. Jack Adcock's sepsis had been
0: caused by a Group A Streptococcal infection. Dr Beaugardba prescribed antibiotics as soon as she saw the x-rays. But there was a delay of another hour before these were administered by nursing staff around 4pm. At the same time the IT system in the hospital had failed, meaning that test results weren't automatically copied into the electronic health record. The senior house officer was taken off clinical duties to communicate test results over the phone. This is how Jack's blood results were communicated to Dr Beauregard by some 5 hours after she'd ordered them. She scribbled down all the figures and noted a raised C-reactive protein. But she didn't pick up on the elevated creatinine and urea levels which would indicate kidney dysfunction. Even when the IT came back online, the alerting system did not flag up abnormal results as it normally would have. There's no doubt that IT systems could streamline the way critical patient information is communicated around the hospital and the broader health service but poor design of displays and control panels can also add to the cognitive demand on a clinician. A 2015 assessment by the US National Academy of Sciences, Medicine and Engineering found that many electronic health record systems had cluttered displays and there was inconsistency in the scales of measurement between programs or the chronology of presentation of test results. Another study of IT tools used by emergency clinicians showed that it took 15 clicks to provide a prescription and 40 clicks to document the exam of an injury. Ian Scott and David Heslop reflect on the ergonomics of health IT systems and how these supports can fit in with day-to-day clinical practice.
2: Well, it's all comes down to design. Uh, so I think in the US uh, there's been a lot of off-the-shelf commercial products that have simply been imposed on hospitals without uh, the local clinicians being any way involved in their design or testing. Um, I think we've learnt in digitising hospitals here in Queensland that things are prioritised in ways that follow an intuitive line of thinking that most clinicians will use. In terms of the ergonomics, uh, the computers are all mounted on mobile uh, platforms. So we carry them around in a uh, on ward round. So we're right there at the patient's bedside with the computer, which has a number of uh, advantages. One, it means that you're seeing that patient and you only have one record open, and that's the patient in front of you. So there's no problems about putting entries into the wrong chart. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is that it's done in real time, there and then on the ward round, whereas in the old days the resident would wait until the four-hour ward round was finished and then start filling out the paper forms and doing the recording. Uh, The third advantage is that you then have access to imaging uh, and other results on the screen which I turn the machine around and then show the patient and it involves them as well and can certainly be a benefit in terms of uh, increasing their understanding of what's going on and sometimes uh, how serious their illness is and what we need to do about it, not only us as healthcare providers but what they need to do in terms of lifestyle change. So I think
3: that uh, there are a whole lot of risks that emerge from providing more information for the sake of providing information. And there are recommendations uh, and standards associated to how, how much information can actually be put on to a two-dimensional surface and expect somebody to be able to absorb it, and that comes predominantly through the aviation industry, actually, and through heads-up displays, for example. But equally, uh, the old paper records had a huge amount of information within them. The risk is that you miss a relevant piece of information. So the value of the automated system is the findability, searchability functions.
0: That brings up the, the issue of alerting systems. As you say, you know, if, if there are abnormal results returned to the health record and you get an alert. Uh, There are actually now reports of alert fatigue, that there are too many alerts from too many different devices. Again, in that NASMI review, 70% of clinicians' surveys thought they received more alerts than they could effectively manage, and 30% said they had actually missed alerts in practice that had resulted in patient care delays.
3: Mm. That's an interesting thing. So, in emergency situations in critical care, we're all familiar with the oxygenation tones. But if there is something more salient in your environment that is occurring, you know, an important conversation or a significant moment with another patient, for example, then those kind of alerts can actually then go into the background and be lost. Um, How many interruptions can a clinician actually deal with before we really start to see some degradations in performance? And what's reasonable as well? I have yet to see a clear evaluation of that particular question.
0: And what about clinical decision support tools, those computer platforms where you type in the symptoms and they, they return a bunch of differentials and not to miss diagnoses? Are they something that can be slotted seamlessly into the diagnostic process?
3: Um, I personally take uh, an approach that they are sometimes useful where I may have doubt. And so again, I'll draw on a military context. Um, In hazardous materials management, if you're dealing with clinicians who don't have experience with a very unusual context, then they can be extraordinarily helpful in providing a probability diagnosis. And there are a number of tools that may be of interest to listeners, such as a a tool called WISER from uh, the National Library of Medicine in the United States, which has a syndromic or symptom-based diagnostic support tool, which is incredibly useful in the non-toxicologist clinician.
0: There was a 2014 systematic review from Bond University that concluded, while these computerized clinical decision tools have been shown to be helpful in teaching and in controlled settings, there's still no evidence to show that how they fit within a clinician's workflow and chaotic real-world environments to actually influence day-to-day practice in a positive way uh, we all practice
3: in subtly different ways and um, for some a clinical decision tool will fit very well with how a clinician might actually naturally do their practice they can become very intrusive where they become a acknowledgement requirement almost like a, a gatekeeping mechanism if you for example have not considered this but you're clicking on this and saying yes in fact I have considered this because you're in a rush It, it can be quite intrusive to the art of medicine I think the problem is that garbage in is garbage out and so if you're on the wrong track to begin with then sometimes it's getting off that track is going to be even harder
0: At 4.30pm, Dr. Bawagadba met with the duty consultant Stephen O'Riordan, who had just returned from his teaching obligations. She told him that Jack had a high CRP reading and pneumonia, but seemed to be on the mend. Dr. O'Riordan would say in court that he didn't review the patient himself, because Dr. Bawagadba hadn't stressed any urgency or alarming findings to him. Unknown to Dr. Bawagadba, Jack's diarrhoea had returned and his temperature had risen, after he'd been moved from the CAU to another ward. Nurse Isabella Maro was later prosecuted for failing to observe Jack adequately and for turning off his oxygen monitoring equipment without informing the doctor. Dr. Bawagadaba was also unaware that around 7pm Jack was given his usual dose of enalopril. It was administered by Jack's mother after she'd checked with the ward nurse. Enalapril is contraindicated in shock because it lowers blood pressure further. It wasn't on Jack's drug charts as Dr. Bawagadaba meant for it to be withheld. In court, it was said that she'd been careless by failing to highlight this more prominently to other staff. 45 minutes after the drug was given, Jack suffered a cardiac arrest. Dr. Bawagadba was called to the bedside and resuscitation was begun. At one point, she stopped these efforts for a minute after mistaking Jack with another patient who'd been marked not for resuscitation. This was now 13 hours into a double shift with no break even for food. At 9.20, Jack passed away. A court would later hear that he was already too far gone for this hiatus in resuscitation to have affected the outcome. Dr. Beaugard was of course traumatised by the event, and some days later Dr. O'Riordan suggested she reflect on the mistakes of the day in writing. She wrote about her interpretation of the blood measures and about breakdowns in communication. These notes were used in the hospital's investigation of the incident, but contrary to many media accounts, they did not come up in court proceedings. In November 2015, Hadiza Bawagadba and Isabella Maro were convicted of gross negligence manslaughter in a jury trial. The Medical Practitioners' Tribunal suspended Bawagadba's licence to practice for 12 months. The General Medical Council then appealed to the High Court, insisting that public confidence in the profession could not be maintained by the application of such a lenient penalty. In January of this year, Justice Duncan Owsley ruled that Dr Bawagadba should be permanently erased from the medical register. In Australia and New Zealand, manslaughter convictions against medical professionals are very rare. Medico-legal commentators quoted by the ABC and the New Zealand Resident Doctors Association point to the greater recognition of systems pressures here and of the need for transparency. But they also say this culture can't be taken for granted. Geoffrey Braithwaite and Ian Scott discuss how the bauer case could influence the disclosure and examination of medical error.
1: Even the Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, about the Bawa Gaba case uh, tweeted and said, this is a big problem for learning because they uh, captured her notes. It's a very evocative case to remind us all. And most doctors I'm talking to are saying, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. I That could have happened in my career.
0: Professor Mark Graeber, who's a bit of an institution in this field, he studied 100 cases of diagnostic error involving physicians and almost half the diagnostic errors were down to a combination of systems errors and individual cognitive error. And some of the discussion in the field of diagnostic reasoning suggests that it's, it's probably impossible to eliminate heuristics and bias from cognitive reasoning, and if, even if you're aware of them. So if we accept that errors will occur, that they're intrinsic, can hospitals or their health system as a whole absorb that error and, and then put it to, to the learning opportunities. Yeah.
1: Look, look, there's a couple of ways to go there, and I think we haven't got the balance right here. Um, I mean, if there's nursing staffing problems, the IT system is down. Uh, if you've just come back from maternity leave and you're feeling stretched, if you get penalised and punished in that situation, it's scapegoating the individual for the system's errors. We ought to fix the system. Uh, so, And there's a great concern that the GMC appealed and took that back up to the High Court. Uh, no one can completely understand that.
0: I mean, where is the, for example, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? BP paid up $5 billion in fines and was held responsible as a corporate entity. They didn't go after the guy that, you know, laid the cement or didn't push the button in time. Are we very far from that in terms of the legislation?
1: I would like to hope that we have more understanding and tolerance in Australia. I couldn't guarantee that in every setting. The reaction from some clinicians could be, next time they're allocated to such a shift, they'll say, I'm sorry, I can't practice here, it's not safe. That would have a pretty interesting effect on the managers and the policymakers, wouldn't
2: it? I think how you can make sure that these errors or misdiagnoses or near misses Uh, addressed in a collegiate, non-judgmental fashion. In our own department at this hospital, we have a regular session called Clinical Conundrums once a week, where we present cases that have caused uh, diagnostic uncertainty, where people are made to feel free and not at any risk of being shamed. Mm. So we discuss these uh, issues openly. Uh, Our registrars and our residents also attend these sessions so they can see that we're all fallible, that mistakes can be made despite the best of intentions. it's very rare that these errors actually result in you know serious injury or patient harm or death, but nevertheless uh, it may have caused a delayed diagnosis, uh, may have caused people to receive treatment that they perhaps didn't need for the first few days. We discuss it, uh, but we don't actually keep minutes. Uh, that will then certainly make people a lot more... Uh, confident in speaking up and saying well I think we perhaps may have done something wrong here. I think the other thing in this too is of course more emphasis on patient disclosure to indicate to patients where a mistake or an error has been made uh, and to make sure that they understand what we've done to address the situation and what we're going to do to prevent uh, similar errors occurring in the future. Uh, If we have any critical incident, uh, minutes are kept but they're privileged. Uh, They're not accessible by Freedom of Information Acts Um, so I think there has to be a balance between the public's right to know but also the ability of clinicians not to incriminate themselves in prosecutory action by actually discussing where errors have been made. Um, I wanted to come back again to the technology, you know, will technology save us? I don't know if you're familiar with the
0: podcast I Am Reasoning Um, Art Nahill and Nick Sheckert talked about how electronic records can be used to Uh, reflect back on uh, a clinician a possible misdiagnosis so say a patient you've discharged is readmitted two weeks later you get an alert and you can check up whether the complaint is consistent
2: with your previous diagnosis uh, we certainly encourage and write in our discharge summaries to all our G- general practitioners, if you have any concerns about this patient or you feel that there have been missteps in management, then please notify us, please contact us. Uh, I think also you need to have confidence that you're not going to put that a professional relationship between, say, a GP and a specialist into, into some sort of doubt. And we've also made access uh, to GPs Uh, to discharge summaries and investigations, uh, any imaging, etc., that's been done in the public hospitals, accessible to them as well by our viewer program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Increasing numbers of hospitals now in Australia are becoming digitised. We have less duplication of tests because we can see what's been done elsewhere and not doing it again. I think that's a definite saving for the healthcare system as well as patient convenience. Most people have spent most of their time
1: Thinking about and doing patient safety, trying to keep patients safe, by doing what we call Safety One, the root cause analysis sort of model. And the idea is we should find out the ultimate determinants of what went wrong, and then we should make some recommendations to fix that so it never happens again. Well, problems don't happen again in exactly the same way anyway. So what have we fixed? And we haven't been as successful as we'd like.
0: You make the point in, I think it was in the International Journal for Quality in Healthcare, that some activities are tractable by this approach. Very procedural things such as central line infection bundles in intensive care unit and checklists in theatres. But in general, there is so much complexity that you can never distinguish the pattern of cause and effect that led up to an erroneous outcome versus the pattern that leads up to a successful outcome. The, the, the
1: variables are too small and immeasurable to, to predict. Most of the difficult things we face are about people with expertise interacting with other people in a complex mix where the behaviours are, aren't so predictable. The patients themselves are very complex. We've conceptualised that, that safety paradigm, in a different way in the last five years. The, the resilient healthcare model suggests, you know, a lot of care, and surprisingly, in a system this complex, so much care goes right. What do we know about that? How can we understand that, and how can we replicate it? Let me give an analogy. Say we want to understand the behavior of sharks, but we only looked at shark attacks. We would only know a small sliver of shark behavior, the time when they attack people. But the sharks actually swimming in the ocean and not attacking people most of the time. So to understand shark behavior, we have to understand the whole behavior patterns of the shark, not just when they attack humans. So we've said, what do we know systematically through research when things go right, when there's no harm? The other one is that thorny old chestnut that people keep raising and they, people say it's the culture. You know, the culture is the way people behave and act without thinking necessarily. It's just the way they do things around here and the way they think around here. And it's unique. And then if you go across town to another hospital, it might be the same kind of hospital, same structure, roughly the same skilled people. They might both declare that they're a center of excellence, by the way, but uh, but, but they'll, they'll be markedly different and the difference will be the culture. So we've done a study. And we looked at where are there studies where people have measured the culture and they'd link that to patient outcomes, This is a systematic review just published in BMJ Open. Almost all the studies uniformly spoke with the same voice. Whenever you've got a better culture versus a poorer culture, you're going to deliver better outcomes. And it doesn't matter what the outcomes were. They were a mix of things in these studies. So we were heartened by that. So if you could promote that better culture, if it's relatively inclusive, if it treats junior staff well and supervises them reasonably uh, effectively, if it seeks the patient's Uh, perspective, Uh, if it engages with other people outside of your own work team area, you're likely to produce good results from patients. Isn't that what we're here for?
0: Many thanks to Geoffrey Braithwaite, Ian Scott and David Heslop for contributing to this episode of Pomegranate Health. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Events reported about the Bawa case come from court transcripts and many other sources. You'll find these at our website racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast, along with other literature mentioned and a full transcript. There are also links to podcasts from I Am Reasoning on the drivers of diagnostic error, and from Key Lime discussing how to improve handover procedures. The paediatrics blog Don't Forget the Bubbles also takes a look at coping after an error has occurred. Editorial advice for this episode was provided by RSCP Fellows. You too can leave comments on our website and keep the conversation going. I'm Mick Cavazzini. I hope to hear from you.